The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian, investigative nutritionist, on a mission to connect the dots between food health, and agriculture. And today it's an honor to welcome Dr. Michael Hansen. He is a senior staff scientist with Consumers Union, which is the publisher of Consumers Reports. Dr. Hansen currently works primarily on food safety issues, and he has been largely responsible for developing CU positions on safety, testing, and labeling of genetically engineered food, as well as mad cow disease. Dr. Hansen served on the USDA's Advisory Committee on Agricultural Biotechnology and on the California Department of Food and Agriculture's Food Biotechnology Advisory Committee. He received his undergraduate degree with highest distinction from Northwestern University and his doctorate in Ecology and Evolutionary Biology from the University of Michigan. He did postgraduate study at the University of Kentucky on the impacts of biotechnology on agricultural research. Dr. Hansen, welcome. Nice to be with you. Well, I wanted to have you on because of your work around genetically modified foods, and this has certainly been in the news lately. However, I'd like to just step back and ask you about Consumers Union and what kind of organization it is. Consumers Union is the policy and advocacy arm of Consumer Reports, and that's the product testing magazine. The thing about Consumer Reports is... We have over 8 million subscribers, both on the Internet and to the print edition that pay approximately $30 a year for a subscription. So that means all the research we do and the policy positions we take are based on our own research. We have a very strict no commercialization policy. So we're sort of insulated from pressure from the company. So, for example, when we test products, we can often find that a product isn't very highly rated, and that often makes the manufacturers very upset, but we will always let them see the kind of testing we did and show them our results. But that has led to us being very highly rated and being seen as very independent. Yeah, I like to say Consumer Reports provides clean science where there's no corporate influence over your statements, so that's why I appreciate it. Right, and most recently, this is particularly an issue when we came out with this report on arsenic levels in various rice products, which got the industry incredibly upset, but that's another story. Right. Well, today we're going to focus on genetically modified crops, and I wonder if you could just tell us from a scientific perspective, what exactly are genetically modified crops? You can also use the term genetically engineered, but either genetically engineered or genetically modified crops, what they are is they're basically crops that have had traits inserted into them through certain molecular techniques that do not happen in nature. And the big issue that causes problems with uh, genetic engineering or genetic modification is you basically have no control over where you're inserting these genes into the crops, and that can cause all sorts of problems. But this technology permits you to move genetic traits or genes from literally any source to any other source. So you can take genes from viruses or bacteria or animals or humans, and you can put them into plants. 
What are your major concerns as a scientist about the technology? The uh, major concerns we have here in the United States is simply the fact that there's no required safety testing before these products are put on the market That, in terms of human safety. So we're pretty much alone in the world in terms of us not recognizing that genetic engineering is different than conventional breeding and requiring safety assessment before these products are put on the market. We simply don't do that. And that's very problematic because that functionally means we're leaving it up to the companies to decide whether these products are safe before they put them on the market. And that's just not a valid thing to do. So a major concern is over the untested human safety impacts, but there's also concern over the environmental impacts because when we uh, look at it, most of these engineered crops, they said they were going to feed the world and reduce pesticide use, but in fact, they've caused a drastic increase in pesticide use and a lot of environmental problems that are associated with that. And then a third concern is a more economic or structural concern. Since they've allowed these plants to be patented to get what are called utility patents, and that means that someone acts like they have created them and own them as though they've created a new machine, and that has led to enormous concentration in the seed industry and has led to six huge gene giants or biotech companies controlling the bulk of the world's food supply. Hmm. You know, this is very interesting because I just returned from the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics annual meeting and Monsanto had a booth in the expo, and there was a quiz for dietitians to take. And one of the quiz questions had to do with safety. And what Monsanto is telling us is that foods and crops derived from plant biotechnology are thoroughly tested for safety. And I quote, biotech crops have been reviewed by FDA, USDA, and EPA. They are tested more than any other crops in the history of agriculture and have been shown to be as safe as their conventional counterparts. I'm seeing a disconnect here from what Monsanto is telling dietitians and what consumers union scientists are saying. Well, that statement by Monsanto is it's truthful, but it's highly misleading. As it turns out, the Food and Drug Administration, except for the Flavor Saver Tomato, has not made a conclusion about the safety of any of these crops. What happens is the policy under which they're regulating this was promulgated over 20 years ago on May 29th, 1992, and it was introduced by then Vice President Dan Quayle as a deregulatory initiative at a meeting of the Biotechnology Industry Organization. So the way the FDA regulates these things was introduced at the beginning as a deregulatory mechanism. It also stated that there is no difference between genetic engineering and conventional breeding, that uh, genetic engineering is just an extension of conventional breeding, and therefore there will be no required safety assessments. What happens is there are these voluntary safety consultations that the companies hold with the FDA, and they don't actually, that does not meet the level of a, a full safety assessment. Uh, what happens at the end of this process is the companies get letters from the, from the agency, and I will read you, there's a sentence that's in all the letters, all the 85 plus letters that 
have been sent out to companies that have gone through these evaluations, these voluntary safety consultations. And this was a letter that was sent to Monsanto on September 25th, 1996, and it was referenced their first BT corn variety, uh, Mon 810. And... This this is the sentence, and it, and it reads, and again, this is the FDA speaking, quote, based on the safety and nutritional assessment you have conducted, it is our understanding that Monsanto has concluded that corn, grain, and forage derived from the new variety are not materially different in composition, safety, or other relevant parameters from corn, grain, and forage currently on the market, and that they do not raise issues that would require pre-market review or approval by the FDA, end quote. So very clearly, you can see from that that the FDA does not state its own opinion on the safety of these crops. It only states what the companies believe. And this clearly shows that the FDA does not conduct safety assessments and hasn't made any conclusion that these crops are as safe as their non-engineered counterparts. The only thing they say is they understand that the companies don't think there's any issues that would require pre-market safety assessment. And I should point out that the U.S. is now in the minority because there's been a global agreement through Codex Alimentarius, that's the Food Safety Standards Setting Organization of the U.N. It's jointly run by the World Health Organization and the Food and Agriculture Organization, and its standards and guidelines are actually considered to be trade neutral in a sense they're referred to in the documents that set up the World Trade Organization. And the fact of the matter is, is the U.S. cannot meet those standards that Codex has laid out, so we can't meet the global standard. Hmm. All right, here's another line from the Monsanto booth. The Monsanto is telling dietitians that biotechnology is part of modern plant science and that it contributes to sustainable agriculture. You know, there's that S word. By helping farmers increase yields, decrease pesticide use, which you already addressed, and improve on-farm management while also improving nutrition, with healthful oils or vegetables with increased phytonutrients. Now, I'm not familiar with any of that data. Are you? Well, this notion that they increase yields is not really true. When there have been side-by-side trials for the soybeans, for example, the peer-reviewed research has demonstrated that there's actually about a 10% lower yield in the engineered soybeans when compared to their non-engineered counterparts. And a study was published in 2001 on this, and what it showed is this 10% decline in uh, yield, about half of that, or 5%, is due to the fact that they're not able to engineer the most elite or the highest yielding soybean varieties. So there's about a 5% decline uh, because of that. And then there's another 5% decline because the engineering process causes disruption. And so that's called yield drag and yield lag. And that's been consistently shown. So there is actually lower yields in the engineered soybeans compared to their non-engineered counterpart. This notion that they reduce pesticide use is just incorrect. There has been a study that was just published last week in Environment Sciences, and it demonstrates that in the U.S. using USDA data, you can demonstrate that between 1996 and through 2011, there was 500 million, over 500 million pounds more of herbicides that were applied to 
engineered crops in the U.S. compared to their non-engineered counterparts. And this massive increase in herbicide use has led to a plethora of glyphosate-tolerant weeds. There's now, if you look globally, there's over 21 different weed species that are resistant to glyphosate. And we have 14 of them in the U.S., and they cause serious economic damage. We have 50,000 acres of cotton, for example, in Georgia with palmer pigweed, which is resistant to glyphosate, resistant to all other, other herbicides. And so that means that in this part of Georgia, they're having to control those weeds. They have to go back and use machetes weeding by hand. This epidemic of these glyphosate-tolerant weeds has been so large that there actually was, in May of this year, there was a National Academy meeting on this about what to do about the epidemic of these herbicide-tolerant weeds. And all this was uh, predicted over 20-some years ago. Some of us pointed out that these crops are just going to lead to both herbicide-tolerant weeds and also that the insects that they're being engineered to be uh, resistant to would um, become resistant as well. And I should back up and just say, even though they talk about this increase in yield, when you look at it, in terms of global acreage, over 80% of the global acreage in engineered crops are herbicide resistant. That means they're designed to be used with, with a company's proprietary herbicides. Let's look here in the U.S. Soybeans. Over 95% of the soybeans are engineered with glyphosate tolerance. We look at canola, that's over 90% engineered with glyphosate tolerance. If we look at sugar beets, 95% of them are engineered with glyphosate tolerance. When we look at corn, about 88% of that is engineered and over 50% of that is due to herbicide resistance as well. So when we actually look at it, we see that what's really happening here is these engineered crops, rather than improving farm management or being more nutritious, what they're really about is selling a lot of companies' herbicides and other pesticides. And I would point out that part of the way that they're dealing with these wave of herbicide-resistant or glyphosate-tolerant weeds is now there in the pipeline. If you look, 14 out of the 20 crops that are in the pipeline to be approved in the U.S. are ones that are more herbicide-tolerant, where they're now making them resistant to 2,4-D, which was part of Agent Orange. Agent Orange was 2,4-D and 2,4-5-T, and dicamba and uh, other herbicides, which are considered to be toxic. So it's ironic that the answer seems to be on herbicide resistance is we'll just engineer crops to be resistant to even more herbicides, which are toxic compounds which are causing both environment and human health damage. And I would just say this notion that they improve on-farm management, that's just another way of saying that they can simplify herbicide decisions because if you can just spray one simple herbicide or a mix of 
of a couple of them, then you don't have to worry about controlling weeds in more ecologically rational ways, as is done with truly organic agriculture and what uh, is done with more agroecological uh, approaches. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Michael Hansen. He is a senior staff scientist with Consumers Union, and his specialty is on food safety and biotechnology. And I have to ask you, Dr. Hansen, you mentioned how these, the increase in herbicides and the increase in these genetically engineered crops are affecting our environment and human health. And as a human nutritionist, I look at what changes I've seen over the course of time. We've seen allergy rates increasing. We've seen autism rates increasing dramatically, and yet we don't have a smoking gun. But I think the precautionary principle would certainly come into play here. And then there was some data that showed that genetically engineered plant materials are finding their way into the human body. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about one of the major food safety concerns about genetically engineered foods is allergenicity. Uh, yes, the issue of allergenicity, the, the concern there is there's about 35% of the global acreage are in crops that are resistant to insect pests. These are the so-called BT crops, and they're engineered with various endotoxins from the soil bacterium Bacillus thuringiensis. Now, this soil bacterium Bacillus thuringiensis is used in organic agriculture and is considered a fairly benign pesticide, but that's when it's used in its natural form. It breaks down very rapidly and is not used, so there's very little exposure. When you engineer that trait into plants, you're actually changing the endotoxin itself. You're not producing it the way that it would be produced in the bacteria. You're actually producing an activated form, which most humans and mammals haven't seen before. And there's actually evidence that these endotoxins, or so-called cryproteins, are both allergens and have adverse effects on the immune system and gut. And this has come from studies of some of the cryproteins themselves, work that's been done in Mexico and Cuba. And it also should be pointed out that there's sequence similarity between some of these cryproteins and known human allergens. So that's a concern that's out there. There's also been some work with farm workers both in the U.S. and in India, which has suggested that they're having allergic reactions to some of these cryproteins. There's work that's been done here in the U.S. where they've actually been able to find an IgE antibody. And for folks that have true food allergies, that's mediated through IgE antibodies. Those were actually found in a pair of farm workers back in a work that was published in 1999. And Dr. Carl Bernstein and colleagues that did that work, they actually, that work was funded by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency and Health Canada. And Dr. Bernstein wanted to follow up on that work because he said, okay, now we have the blood and skin reagents that we can now test these BT crops that are on the market, such as BT corn or BT cotton, that those could be tested to see whether they could cause allergy problems since they have someone that now has these antibodies to that. And he's not been able to do any of that research, can't get any money to do the work, and can't get approval from the National Institute of Health. And 
that has actually frustrated him. And since that time, there's actually been other feeding studies which have involved some of these Bt crops, and they have found adverse effects on the gut and immune system. There was some very careful feeding work that was done a study done in Italy where they took Mon810, which was the first BT corn variety that Monsanto put out, and they grew it with its near isoline. That means the genetic parent that it came from. And they grew them in the same environment, in, in fields right next to each other in Ladriano, Italy. And that controlled for environmental differences. And then what they did is they did this 30-day and 90-day feeding studies with elderly mice and weaning or young mice. And the idea there is that young mice and older mice might be more susceptible than a healthy, a normal age mice, so adverse effects might be more easily seen. And what that work clearly demonstrated is they found changes in the gut of those mice and in various uh, parameters that they uh, looked at T cells and B cells and various interleukins, and they concluded from that that there could be problems. As they said, and I'm quoting from the paper, quote, there was an increase of serum IL, that's interleukins, IL-6, IL-13, IL-12P70, and MIP1-beta after MON810 feeding was also found, and those are compounds that are involved in the inflammation response. So this study concluded, quote, these results suggest the importance of the gut and peripheral immune response to GM crop ingestion as well as the age of the consumer in the GMO safety evaluation, end quote. So there have been studies which have raised uh, health questions about these engineered crops. So with regard to the gut, the integrity of the gut, are those changes, would they lead to a more permeable gut or a more leaky gut? Well, there's uh, the research that you're referring to there is there's been some work done with the CRY1AC, and that's one of these uh, delta endotoxins, and CRY1AC is one of the uh, proteins that is found in some engineered corn varieties, also engineered Cotton? Cotton. And actually, there's been work done with engineered rice as well with the Cry1AC and also with the so-called BT brinjal or BT egg eggplant. And anyway, this work that's been done by scientists in Mexico and Cuba, Dr. Vasquez Padron and colleagues, they have demonstrated that this Cry1AC protoxin binds to the brush border membrane vesicles in the small intestine. And the reason that's important is that's the exact same area in the gut of insects, in the gut of the caterpillars where they bind. And that study found that there was a change in the, quote, electrophysiological properties of the uh, jejunum. And that's just another way of saying that, yes, there could be a change in the permeability of the uh, gut. Because when you change electrophysiological properties, that can help determine what may or may not pass through the gut. And so that's work that actually should be followed up on but hasn't been after this work was done and published. Unfortunately, Dr. Vasquez uh, Padron 
was fired from his job and hasn't been allowed to leave Cuba to give talks about this work in Europe when he when he was asked to do this. So yet again, we see another case of scientists who find adverse uh, potential adverse effects on these crops. There's usually some forms of uh, retaliation that happen. Well, I think it's also important for our listeners to know that when farmers buy genetically engineered seed in the U.S., they invariably must sign a product stewardship agreement, which forbids them from giving those seeds to researchers. This is absolutely true. Not only does that happen, but it also turns out that because these seeds are patented, it turns out that the researchers can't do the research they want to do with them. What they have to do is they literally have to get permission from the company before they can do any research. And this has been such a problem that in 2000, in early 2009, 26 public sector scientists took the unprecedented step of writing to the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency to complain that these companies were curbing their rights to study the biotech crops. The signatories to the letter, their that was sent into the EPA were anonymous because they were concerned about retaliation, but some of them uh, spoke openly about it. And as their statement said, quote, company control starts with a simple grower's contract. Anyone wishing to buy transgenic seed has to sign what's called a technology stewardship agreement that says, among other things, that the buyer cannot conduct research on the seed nor give it to someone else for research. This means scientists can't simply buy seed for their studies, and farmers can't slip some of the seeds on the side to uh, researchers. Instead, scientists must get uh, permission from the seed companies or they risk a lawsuit. And as one of the signatories, this is Dr. Bruce uh, Tabashnik, he's an entomologist at the University of Arizona, which he said, quote, you need permission from the industry and you have to specify what you want to do with the plants, end quote. And that kind of industry control over the research that's done doesn't bode very well because if you're doing work which might find problems, well, then the companies can just say, sorry, we're not going to give you that seed anymore. We just have a couple of minutes left, and I want to make sure that we cover the issue of labeling. You are in favor of labeling, as am I, but I'd like to know why you favor labeling. Well, I think there's uh, actually two reasons why we need to uh, label engineered foods. One is that it's a simple consumer right-to-know issue. Uh, Consumers have the absolute right to know what's in the uh, food they eat. Surveys show anywhere from 80 to 95% of uh, people have said they would like to know whether foods they're eating are genetically engineered. And then the second reason is the fact that these crops have not gone through a pre-market safety assessment. There could be unintended health consequences from that. The only way that we would be able to track that is if there's labeling of these foods. In the international parlance, that's saying that labeling can serve as a risk management measure to deal with scientific uncertainty. And I would finally like to end by saying just this past uh, July, the American Medical Association actually now has changed their stance, and they now are saying that there should be mandatory pre-market safety assessment before these crops are allowed on the uh, market. And that is a big change because that's an implicit recognition that there could be an adverse health uh, effect from consuming these crops, and the only way we could tell if 
there are these adverse effects is you have to have labeling. Otherwise, you can't do any studies because you don't know who are the exposed and the unexposed populations or how much they may or may not have been exposed. Well, Dr. Hansen, I want to thank you so much for being my guest today. We've been speaking with Dr. Michael Hansen, a senior staff scientist with Consumers Union, publisher of Consumer Reports. He currently works primarily on food safety issues. He's an expert in agricultural biotechnology. He served on the USDA Advisory Committee on Agricultural Biotechnology, and he is well informed to do this work. He holds a doctorate in ecology and evolutionary biology from the University of Michigan, and he did postgraduate study at the University of Kentucky on the impacts of biotechnology on agricultural research. I want to thank you again for being my guest. I want to thank our listeners for joining us, and I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios by Dan Hemmelgarn in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you so much for speaking out, Dr. Hansen. Thank you. I'm glad to be on your program. 